0: I'm Mel Kettle and you're listening to This Connected Life, the show where connected leaders share their experience, values and strategies that have helped them become more connectable so they achieve success in life and business. Welcome back to This Connected Life. My guest today is Assistant Commissioner at Queensland Fire and Emergency Services, Andrew Short. Queensland Fire and Emergency Services is the primary provider of fire and emergency services in Queensland, and they have thousands of people who look after our beautiful state during fire season and other times. Um, So I'll get Andrew to talk a little bit about that, but Thank you so much for joining us and welcome.
1: Mao, it's an absolute pleasure to be uh, here today to, ha- to have this conversation with you about uh, matters of leadership. It's wonderful.
0: Thanks. So my first question that I ask every guest is, what does connection mean to you?
1: It's an interesting word, connection. And, and certainly, um, you know, the, the meaning of it um, at its most central is, you know, one entity being connected to another. And it, when we apply that to people, um, then certainly I've I've long had the view that better leaders I see are able to form those connections, um, are are able to maintain them when they're in place, and probably understand the risk when the uh, connection breaks. It's, uh, you know, there's so many different themes to this, but certainly it's a real thing for human nature.
0: Yeah, it is, and I love how everybody I ask this question of gives me a completely different answer. I'm still waiting to ask for somebody to say to me it's all about technology and iPhones, but I haven't had that response yet (laughs) and I didn't expect it from you. it's
1: interesting you say that because uh, for so long, um, technology's always been shoved to the front of the queue uh, when matters of uh, connection and leadership and people turn it into an IT issue and even though technology is a real thing for us all and even in our sector, uh, we rely on technology more than ever to allow us to do the work we need to do. However, when you strip it all away, it comes down to a, a simple exchange of information, expression of common commitment to a cause, and then uh, people willing to uh, you know, use that connection to work through the issues that are be compromising yeah, you know, the mission. And uh, look, I, I, I believe that these themes play through every industry. They're different context sometimes, but uh, certainly for us uh, in our sector, where our our simple mission is to help people uh, prepare for the worst, and then when people are going through some difficult times, our work is simply to um, help them the best we can to get through that uh, that moment, whether it be a small or a large moment.
0: So, what are some of the ways you help people prepare for the worst? It's a very
1: current challenge for our sector. Uh, for so long, the, the lion's share of attention has always been given to response, so governments can be successful or uh, or fall uh, on the basis of how they manage a you know, large emergency, and and that will always continue. However, we know. And, and there's lots of research around this where we know that any effort made to help an individual or a community understand uh, the situation they're in and the potential that they have might, might have around them uh, might be for a bushfire, might be for a storm, might be for a uh, But certainly we know that when the moment comes, when there's a, a big event impacting on community, the communities that have done the work to understand their their risk and um and take some steps to minimise as best they can, will always come out better than um, than the alternate. And now I've been in the industry long enough now to have seen uh, events big and small where, you know, communities maybe haven't prepared how they might have. And, you know, and government's got a role to play in that, and therefore you know, people get hurt, and it's extremely sad.
0: Um, I know when I was a teenager, we... grew up in Gosford on the New South Wales central coast. And I remember my mother called me one day and said, we're on bushfire alert. And I said to her, what do you mean? (laughs) And she, (laughs) well, particularly because they lived in a very residential area, almost downtown in the city. And she said, well, there's no fires around us, but there's fear of the fires on the other side of the water with the embers that might fly over. And I just thought, wow, you've just sometimes got no comprehension when you live in the city that you can be at risk. And then, you know, shortly after that, some friends of ours who lived in Sydney on the northern beaches, their house burnt down in a bushfire. And I just remember thinking, how does that happen in a major city? But I guess in Australia, so many of our major cities are ringed by beautiful national parks and the bush that we're so well known for. So, how do you help people understand in areas where there haven't traditionally been fires that they need to be prepared?
1: Yeah, it's it's a real challenge, uh, Mel, and, and certainly when you're talking to a part of the community that historically maybe hasn't been touched by um, particularly fire, bushfire, to actually get that message uh, to them, it's a real challenge because you're, you're competing with all the other things in life that are happening for people. and. Certainly, in recent years, the research base has become stronger. Uh, we've watched what's happened in, uh, in other nations, California being um, California as a state within the US being a prime example where communities historically didn't, didn't get impacted, uh, are now getting impacted. As a community, Australia is growing, and therefore we're having more people who are living closer within or adjacent to bushland. And you know, there's a term for it that we use, which is iZone, meaning it's a uh, interface zone between bushland and uh, built environment. Certainly, a lot of effort has been gone into to communicate with that cohort, given the risk. Now, when we're talking about people who have historically lived in built-up areas, getting their head around um, having to think a little bit different uh, in terms of what steps they can take to prepare the house and then what steps they may may need to take to um, evacuate uh, should the advice uh, or the direction come to do that. It's a big shift. And every state and territory around our nation who uh, carry bushfire risk are being confronted by how to get the messaging across well.
0: Bushfires are very topical at the moment because so much of Australia is burning. But it's not only fires that you look after, it's also um, incidents like floods and other natural disasters and emergencies, isn't it?
1: Yeah, particularly for us in Queensland, where we are, I understand the, the most impacted state in terms of uh, natural disaster and the primary risk being uh, cyclone. Every year they, they forecast the number of cyclones to come close to or, or cross the coast. And for us, I think it's quite an interesting dilemma in that we have our traditional bushfire period, which is getting longer, and certainly the last few years that that is happening and then we have a, a, a cut over to a period where we you know where we might have a you know, major bushfires occurring in one part of the state and we have a, a cyclone you know crossing further up north so we have that phase where we're, we're dealing with both foreign water and wind and then we then move into the, the later part of the season which which us de- dealing with um, you know, primarily storm and, and cyclones so it's quite a interesting thing for communities who are impacted by both We've got to be very clever and sharp in terms of our messaging to that one group so that they change their or bring their attention to a risk which has changed in their community. And we're getting better at it each year, uh, certainly, and certainly you know, in this day and age, where organisations who, particularly in public sector, who provide services to community, the notion of uh, visibility on things that are done well and things that are not done so well, the level involved, transparency now is incredibly high so uh, it's a tough gig to you know be on the on our game all the time but that's what we have got to do because in the end if we fail in our mission then uh, certainly our communities are going to be hurt
0: and your team does such an amazing job of both educating people and then being there when the times are stressful difficult challenging awful (laughs) all those words so thank you
1: they, they look they're wonderful, and, and our agency, we have both paid staff and we have volunteers. And certainly, uh, um, you know, going back to your earlier point about uh, being connected, uh, you know, one of the things that we continue to work on is to try to increase the potential for our, regardless whether you're paid or a volunteer, that you're considered as an integral part of the team. And on the ground, uh, we, we commonly have mixed teams mm. and certainly that can bring some challenges, but when it works, it's incredibly positive to, to actually see it happen and to see the uh, – when teams understand that, you know, regardless of whether you're being paid or whether you're a volunteer, that you've got a role play, when they're successful – and they step back at the end and they see what they've done by their contribution to a uh, quite a a dangerous event, and they see the feedback that they're getting from community, which is incredibly rich and uh, uh, incredibly appreciative of what's happened. That's when you see your teams understand why being connected is so incredibly important.
0: Mm. How many volunteers do you have versus paid staff?
1: Uh, We have a lot more volunteers than we have paid staff. We we have uh, you know, tens of thousands of volunteers across our rural uh, fire and state emergency service teams, and we have a paid staff, including you know, professional firefighters, which is about you know, just over 3,000. So you know, our, our volunteers certainly in numbers you know, form more of our team.
0: So how do you communicate with them all? Because I'm assuming there's different methods for communicating with your volunteers compared to your paid staff because I would assume the employees would have an intranet or emails and addresses, and you've got more of their contact details.
1: You sound by your line and questioning, you sound like you know what our systems are and the challenges that we have. Given that, uh, you know, paid staff communication is generally more straightforward, uh, and certainly in this day and age, email is the is the primary tool and that can be used for um, th- that can be problematic even with paid staff, given how much email. Goes back across a, in, a, in a in a day these days. For our volunteers, uh, it's a much more of a challenge, given that these are people who don't, um, you know, they, they contribute uh, only a um, generally only a, a you know, possibly a few minutes a week, up to a few hours. And and if we've got operations happening, they they actually step away from their jobs and commit to us four time So we've got this you know, group who are sometimes we've got access to them only for a very short time, and other times we've, we've got them um, more um, captured to be able to uh, communicate, and certainly operations is an example of that. But it's certainly something that we're having to work on to become better. Uh, even, even now we um, we have times where we are able to get a message to uh, certain parts of the organisation and, and other times where we're not quite so successful of getting to everywhere we want to get. So, Social media plays a big role for us uh, in this day and age, particularly for our volunteers, because they use social media to communicate from a uh, personal and family perspective. So, you know, kind of coming in and using those systems is is beneficial. But it's a real challenge, and I'm not going to say that we've got it right, but we've come a long way uh, in in quite a short time, and uh, and and I look forward to a future where. We're we're, uh, we're we're communicating well, and we're not wasting people's time by you know, sending them everything that we think we want to send out, uh, as opposed to being more targeted with our with our communications. It's it's central. Um, don't know. People feel disconnected, not well. They they feel like we're uh, we're not um we're, we're not being mindful of their will.
0: Mm. I know a few years ago I did some work with an organisation that had probably fifteen thousand staff and most of them didn't have email address, company email addresses because of the nature of their job. They weren't desk bound and so they didn't weren't provided with an email and communicating with them was a real challenge because we had to find non technological ways because they weren't big adopters of technology and they also didn't want to give their personal mobile numbers to their employer. So it just it was a challenge and I really and they were employees. So I think the level of challenge you must have when it's volunteers who are giving of their time so generously, but there's times when they won't want to or they can't because of you know personal reasons, work reasons, family reasons, whatever. It's such an extra challenge that I think a lot of organisations don't have and don't comprehend the enormity of.
1: Yeah, this this is incredibly important for us. There is a, a level of frustration in terms of you know getting as I was speaking to earlier, getting to the right person at the right time. I try really hard to put my feet into the shoes of a lot of volunteer. And certainly one of the expressions we use in our agency at the moment is, um, you know, think volunteers. So when you create policy, when you create a new system, you know, think about that person who gives their time freely. And the contact time is so limited. Uh, so therefore, we've got to be really careful and mindful on, on how we go about it. And it's not uh, like any organisation around this com- uh, this country whether emergency services or broader, who has a mixed workforce of volunteers and paid staff would have the same challenges. And, and I don't think um, we've actually landed on the, the perfect solution as yet, but we've got to keep trying because it's one of the ways, as I know, when you respect volunteers quite well, but it's the same. If you respect your paid staff well, the ways they want to be respected, then the discretionary effort and and discretionary commitment involved. Again, there's lots of research.
0: Mm. I just want to change tack a little bit. Before your current role, you were um, the Director of Professional Development for the QFES. And I know from having done a little bit of homework about you that you're a massive believer in lifelong learning and that you believe somebody can learn something new every day. How do you instill that lifelong learning ethos across the organisation?
1: Yeah, it's, look, it's a bit of a holy grail thing. Um, and if you find it, by the way, I'm quite happy for you to let me know what the, what the, what the answer <laughs> is, what the, what the silver bullet is, Because, but being serious now, I know that there's that not a simple solution. Certainly the notion of people accepting, understanding, seeing the benefit of being someone who wants to continue learning throughout their life, you know, if I could somehow fast-track that for people, uh, a, lot, a lot of the time I see that, particularly when you're seeing people not working well together or you know, fractured uh, relationships all that you know, difficult part of a life that we have to live. I know that when people get stuck in a rut because they think they've stopped learning or they, they've, they've stopped learning and they're not, their eyes aren't open anymore to uh, other possibilities, they can actually end up not being able to see their part of something. So whether professionally, from a skills perspective, or whether just our uh, human interaction, you know, the notion of you know, lifelong learning is central. For me personally, I'm, you know, I'm not the person I was five years ago or ten years ago, uh, and I hope that I'm not the same person in five years' time or ten years' time because that will say that, um, you know, I haven't shifted in my thinking or I haven't taken on new knowledge.
0: Is there any one particular thing that has helped you shift in that thinking, or? one thing that stands out for you?
1: I would have to say that being open to the notion that maybe your knowledge or attitude on something is not correct. So giving yourself the space to accept that maybe you haven't got it right and if you need to shift, you can, and if you're after working through something, you go, well, actually this issue or matter aligns with my values, It aligns with um, my beliefs, Uh, and I think I'm on solid ground here, then you can hold your ground. But I think people sometimes get caught in the trap of defaulting to what their view is on something without giving themselves a chance to uh, actually um, shift and um, move on to
0: a better place. It sounds like there's a good story there somewhere from a time where uh, you...
1: (laughs) Well, look, we're all on this journey and all of us in our lives have, we all have situations occur where you, you look back and think, well, gee, I wish I was a you know, more mature person or had more knowledge, and maybe you know, things might have uh, gone a different direction. It's not about being, it's not about regretting. And I'm very careful. You know, I think people coming to me regrets can actually be a real burden. Uh, but I think any person who's seeking to be a, uh, a grown up you know, needs to have that uh, notion clear in their mind that maybe they could learn something here. And I've been fortunate; I've had some great mentors in my life who. You know, wouldn't let me take the shortcut of trying to externalize a cause, a, you know, causality or reason. And, uh, you know, certainly that notion of pointing things back to yourself a bit to check yourself. And that's something that I don't think happens well enough in um, society mm. as it is now.
0: I find the concept of regret is something that has always been very curious to me because I've never had regrets over decisions I've made or things I've done. And obviously there's been things that I've done that I wish I've done differently, but I've learned through the bad mistakes I've made. So I like to sort of reframe a regret as being maybe curious about what might have happened had I done something differently. And I think regrets are such, they can be so negative negative. And you can, as you said, you can create this massive burden for yourself if you live a life filled with regret for things that you didn't do rather than accepting responsibility and looking at what you could potentially do differently should a similar situation arise.
1: Yeah, and I see too many people who are are carrying so much. Brené Brown does a lot of her work that she does is about trying to separate shame from guilt and that, you know, her view, and I do agree with a lot that she's got to say is that, you know, there are times in life where you know, it's actually not, not such a bad thing to feel guilty about something if you've, if you've let someone down or it's all part of that mechanism of checking yourself, whereas, you know, her, her view is that um, that's very different to shame and, um, you know, people are feeling shame about what, what happened in their life and things that they may or may not be responsible for. Again, there's a lot of research about this, but I do know that shame is deadly and getting people to uh, move on to becoming a different person or a better person. I think it's incredibly important to um, be very mindful of how you handle your regrets, as you outlined. And I'm I'm fortunate. It feels like I don't keep regrets front and central. But I certainly do spend a bit of time thinking about maintaining and certainly supporting relationships I have with people around me, both um, personally and professionally.
0: Mm. I think that's really important just to keep looking back and thinking, what could I have done differently or what did I learn from that experience or how did that experience make me hopefully a better person or, you know, a slightly different person to who I was yesterday, last week, last year?
1: It's an awful thing for someone to get stuck in a point in their life Mm. where they can't go back, they can't go forward. It must be this feeling of being trapped and being in an organisation which is a has thousands and thousands of people, the, the role I'm in, I get to see that sometimes and um, it's not good. And I know that that's, this is a societal thing, it's not just um, you know, any organisation, it's a theme that's you know, playing throughout society and somehow getting us to a point where we're a more mindful society, where we're we think outside ourselves more, it has to be a good
0: thing. I think some people don't know how to get unstuck as well. I've, I certainly I look at um, a man I met when I worked in government fifteen years ago before I started my own business, and we used to catch up. and He was we were both really unhappy with our jobs and with other elements of our lives, and I caught up with him about you know, five years after that, and then 10 years after that. And my life had changed enormously, but his was the same. And he still was complaining and unhappy about his job and the same personal elements that he'd been unhappy about, you know, 15 years ago. And I just remember remember thinking, you're in control of your own life. And some of the changes that you need to make are not actually that big although they were unsurmountable to him. And it just, I found it really intriguing that he was prepared to just stay with the status quo and, you know, the devil he knew rather than take a risk and move away. And, yeah. It, it, yeah. and but I also think, and this is what I noticed with a lot of people, he was trapped in that cycle of he was married, he had children, he was paying school fees, he had a big mortgage, he had a big house, he had, like a lot of lifestyle expenses that had just grown up over time and he didn't know how to, or he didn't, he wasn't prepared to make the sacrifices that were necessary to make the changes that would have made him happier. And I think a lot of people get stuck in that revolving cycle of earning, spending, earning, spending without thinking about how they can step backwards and reevaluate to move forwards.
1: I've had some uh, certainly visibility of people in this situation and what I've seen is they can commonly have around them not enough critical friends. An example I use is if someone has a disappointment in life and they're working through those stages of dealing with that, sometimes it's not actually good to have a a friend around you who's encouraging your endeavour to externalise it and the friend who says, Oh, yeah, you should feel bad about that. That's wrong. You know, they're awful. You, know, you should be angry. And unfortunately, there's a lot of this happens. So I tend to talk about that we all need that critical friend, You know, the one who will be brave enough to actually say to us what we need to hear, and that is, have you checked your own part of this? Have you checked that everything you've done? Is everything you could have done? Or are you just taking the easy way out? So don't surround yourself with people who are just going to tell you what you want to hear.
0: Yeah, we actually had this conversation with a previous guest, Dominique Quattuccio, and I said to him, how did you get from being in the finance sector to now doing a lot of work with men to make men better people? And he said, oh, a very kind girlfriend, a friend of mine who was a female friend, sat me down one day and said, Dominique, you're such an asshole. you need to change. <laughs> <laughs> and she very right. gently gave him a couple of books to read, and one of them was Napoleon yeah. Hill. I forget which one, but one of Napoleon Hill's books. And he said it just changed his life. And he didn't realise at the time, but it set him on this trajectory of becoming a better person. And that was about, I think, seven or eight years ago. And he said he's so grateful to her now for having such a brave conversation with him that could have completely ended their friendship. But she loved him enough to say, you're being such a dick. Can you just get over yourself and become a better man and become the man that so many of us know you have the potential to be.
1: Yeah. And people, it's interesting, people reflect back on those moments in their life, particularly when they're you're getting through their life a bit or, you know, they've had a, a bit of a scare of health or, you know, some other big event in their life. And you know, when they're asked to say, you know, what was the moment for you where you took some choices? And commonly you'll see that there was a person who who spoke to them directly and frankly, from their heart, and it's a wonderful thing. You know, you can lead a horse to water, but can't make it drink. And certainly, uh, some of the people that I've worked with over time, in terms of me mentoring them, you do sometimes feel like you're having the same conversation yeah. over and over. But yeah. but they have not yet actualized. What they probably know they need to do, but not quite there yet. So I find myself I, I tend to get a little bit more blunt if it's going on for too long. Same. And that's you know that's me giving people a chance to take action on their own after taking counsel or having interaction with a mentor or a coach but after that there comes a time where they need to be told come on time to get on with it you're languishing too long in this moment
0: have you had any well-meaning friends have that conversation with you yeah
1: absolutely and it's probably been fundamental to who I've become I'm a person now who's much better at receiving adverse feedback and I wasn't always that person now I am and it happens more often than you think, than people think. And maybe people should accept that it should happen quite regularly because none of us know everything and none of us have got the you know the 360 view on any situation. So there are always going to be different views and different perspectives and different people having different lenses when they look at something. And I include myself in that. So I think I'm getting to a point where actually when those moments come for me personally, I, I'm treating it, treating it more as a opportunity to grow through something. Someone, I was talking this about to one of my colleagues the other day, and certainly if we talk about the notion of wisdom, someone becoming wise, uh, yeah, there's a lot to be said about a big part of that is people being able to look inside themselves, as opposed to maybe uh, taking the convenient way of uh, externalising factors.
0: Yeah, looking inside yourself can be really confronting, but I think before you can really connect with other people, you need to have that strong connection with yourself, and more and more people, I think, are beginning to realise that. As particularly, well, maybe it's because I'm getting older and I'm realising that. I don't know.
1: <laughs> there's an old expression, "Young head on old shoulders," and you know, I've got two younger adults. I shouldn't say kids. Are young adults, I haven't like I can say that. And you look at them, you say, "Gee, you're doing well." You also see that they're learning. Uh, they learn the same stuff. They're making the same mistakes that we all made when we were a little bit younger. And there's no fast track through that. And that's just life. And uh, you know, to anyone who thinks that they can um, walk the road for someone else, particularly uh, you know, kids becoming adults, you, you can't do it. You've you got to let them make their own mistakes and fall into their own holes because I think it is part of them becoming truly mature adults and better people.
0: Absolutely, and I look at some of the things that I did when I was in my teens and early twenties and early thirties, and some of the decisions. And I think, what was I thinking at the time? Who was that person? Who exactly. That person? <laughs> and thank God, social media didn't exist then.
1: <laughs> I know we'd we, yeah, we all have a long history, which is now. I'd oh, be
0: in deep trouble if there was. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah. Moving right along.
0: <laughs> if it's going to change even
1: more, I mean, yeah, we have the social media now. I think the pressures on people, in terms of things being now open to the world, is only going to increase, and that's going to be interesting how society deals with that and copes with that. Because things that were hidden or could be put under the carpet, you know, they can't these days, and sometimes or should they be? Yeah, you know, we see the all the stuff playing out in the media of people who are wronged, and now things are coming out, you know, years or decades later. It's very confronting, and hence you know, why I think um, you know, once people understand if they do the work on themselves as early in their life as they can, Mm. it does get a little bit easier. It does, I think.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. We've only got a couple of minutes left, so I just want to ask you a couple of other questions. And one of the things I'd love to know, is there any particular book that's impacted you? And I see looking. he's looking to his bookshelf. (laughs) You know, when you said that,
1: I've just turned to my left, and I've got a number of books up there. Certainly uh, there are some books that I go back to, and then I'll, I'll give you an example. The book Invictus, which is about the um, you know, the, the, the South African story about you know, Mandela and what played out through that period is imprisonment and that notion of having the courage to go on. It's actually a, pr- a poem written by William Henley, which talks about, uh, and people can find this on the internet, it's anyone who's gone through an incredibly tough time in their life, I, I would advise them to find that uh, poem titled Invictus by Henley, because it talks about no matter how tough things are, you can take some choices and keep going as far as you can, given the circumstances. And, and that, for my life now, that will, will always have a place in the wall for me. You know, I'm a big fan of uh, you know, Malcolm Gladwell in terms of uh, you know, all the books he, he has done around social science and you know, why people are and why people do the things they do, which I find incredibly interesting.
0: Have you read his latest book? I've forgotten what it's called.
1: No, I don't think I have because I think the last one was one he published about five years ago, I think. And because I'm I'm an avid uh, audiobook user and that's how I get through my books is I actually uh, I get, get to them in the car and that's another thing I'd, I'd say to people. If you're having trouble reading, then um, if you've got any sort of period that you've got to be in a the car, then um, certainly you can use that time very well. But certainly I'm a big fan of Bill Bryson. From a short history of nearly everything to to his later piece, which is about he's got he's just released a book on uh, the human body. So I'm actually I'm a big non-fiction fan, and I tend to you know bounce around a bit. And certainly I'm just looking out my my library in terms of my audio books, and, and there's it's mainly non-fiction. There's a lot of stories in there about individuals, commonly people who have been through incredibly um, you know, difficult circumstances. Certainly uh, one of my other go-to books is the book about um, Man's Search for Meaning, uh, which was Victor Frankl. Yeah, so Man's Search for Meaning, which is another book about uh, a person's life. And for that individual, he you know, he was uh, uh, in a concentration camp and went on to become a very successful psychologist or psychiatrist, I should say. And, uh, and the, the notion of um, you know, resilience and trying to understand the messages that life gives us, which aren't always simple and aren't always straightforward. So I do love
0: my reading. What are you reading now?
1: I'm actually reading uh, a book by um, Craig Ferguson. And Craig Ferguson is a Scottishman who um, was a uh, comedian um, and was a late show host. Uh, the title of the book is Riding the Elephant, a memoir of altercations, humiliations, hallucinations and observations so it's clearly a book written by a a very smart man who he's got to a point in his life now where he's trying to make sense of it and certainly I I, and he's a man who um, is the first to acknowledge that he's made lots of mistakes in his life so I do enjoy tuning into people who are not trying to um, spin something or kill the lily make things appear uh, brighter or different to what they are and I'm certainly enjoying that book.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. If people want to connect with you, where can they find you?
1: LinkedIn would be probably the, uh, the, the simplest way to get me. I, I tend to uh, separate my um, uh, professional life from my personal life in terms of social media. So I I tend not to use uh, things like Facebook for connections professionally, but certainly LinkedIn, I'm quite happy to uh, engage with people as people see if they do find me on um, LinkedIn, that they'll see that I do post the the occasional article or share an article and and provide some thoughts around that, even though it may come across as me telling people about things. It's actually me um, sharing something that I've learned, and uh, I think... um, The more of that that we have in society in terms of sharing knowledge, it can only lead us to a better place as opposed to this notion of um, I'll look after me, I'm not going to worry about you, which is a very short-sighted thing that plays very strong in aspects of uh, society both nationally and internationally.
0: Yeah, absolutely agree. And that's how we connected through LinkedIn because you shared something that really resonated with me. And I've completely forgotten what that was, but thank you. <laughs> yeah. And, and look, and as I do, I, I enjoy
1: uh, seeing what people have got to say. So I just, people, uh, whether it's LinkedIn, whether it's books, whether it's connecting with um, you know, someone wise in your life, do something about it. If you feel like you want to become uh, something different or a better version of yourself Uh, because there's lots of ways to do it and and certainly now your, your podcasts are an example of that.
0: Thank you. And on that note, thank you again for being a guest. Really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you very much. Have a lovely rest of the day.
0: You too. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you really liked what you heard, please leave me a review on iTunes or a recommendation on LinkedIn, or both. The show notes are all on the website, melkettle.com forward slash podcast, and I'd love you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You'll find me at Melkettle. See you next time, and stay connected. Bye.